Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. My guest today is Stephen D. Pally, at Stephen D. Pally. That's with a PH. He is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Anderson Kill, where he chairs the Technology, Media, and Distributed Systems Practice Group. He represents emerging technology and construction industry clients in connection with litigation, insurance coverage matters, and product design and development. Welcome to the Law of Code podcast, and, and thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Jacob. I appreciate it. I wanted to start off in a different manner than I usually do, and I wanted to talk to you a bit about the car game. Uh, could you describe what that is for people who might not be familiar? Yeah, it's um, it's funny. You emailed me about this before, and I was like, "What is he talking about? What is the car game?" And you reminded me that I talked about this at uh, the ETH Berlin conference a couple of years ago. So it's something I do when I'm bored on long car rides. I'll just look at things, and I will imagine, or I'll consider, I'll look at a thing and look at an object, and um, think to myself what the connections are between that object and the world of law. So, like right now, I'm sitting in an office. And I'm looking at a bit of tempered glass in a wall. And I know that there are a couple of legal regimes that touch that. One is there's a building codes, right? Um, and a building inspector. So like an engineer or architect probably had to review plans that included those things. There are also probably product specifications somewhere that govern the construction of those things and sort of te technical specifications. Uh, probably the glass was made in a refractory and the refractory is governed by all sorts of uh, laws and regulations, codes involving uh, uh, product safety, uh, em employee, employee safety. And so that's just one example of um, what I do. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting. You, can't, you cannot name an object in this world uh, that someone who knows something about law won't be able to uh, take and place into that legal world. And I would say that's one of the things that um, happens when you become a lawyer. You train, to, you train to think a certain way, and maybe one of the side effects of that is the ability to do what I just described. Now, I, you asked me about that, and I was like, what is that? Is that some sort of Zoomer game? Because like, I asked, uh, asked my partner, Preston, my partner, Preston Byrne, I was like, what's the car game? Because like, he knows about these millennial Zoomer things, and he's like, I have no idea. But it, apparently it was my own game. Uh, so that's it. It's like taking the world as you see it, finding a thing and figuring out where it fits into a legal framework. And it's fun. And I think it's a good way to stimulate your creativity and your legal knowledge as well, because you might even end up looking up something that you weren't sure how it could fit into some sort of regime. How did how did this first start? What led to the creation of the card game? Do you, do you remember no, I have no idea. I mean, like for a while, so I moved to DC from the Midwest some years ago, 
And we used to drive back on a fairly regular basis, and it was like 14 hours each way. And because I was an impecunious baby lawyer and um, cheap, I didn't want to. I didn't like stopping, so we would literally drive through. Sometimes 16 hours with like a baby in the back. Um, so I just had something to keep my mind occupied. Um, so I don't know. Uh, just a thing I do. Uh, my own weird brain to to stay awake on long car rides. Um, and you gave it the name of the car game. I literally had no idea what you're talking about. There are other car games too. Another car game is where you, uh, you pick, you start with three letter words. Um, and then, uh, the next person takes the last letter in the word and turns it into a four letter word. And I've got a million car games. (laughs) That is one of them. And then I know you contain multitudes. Uh, you, I wanted to go back a little bit before you went into law and you had completed your PhD coursework and exams for English language and literature, but left the PhD program without submitting a dissertation to go to law school. I can imagine that was a, a difficult decision. I was curious why you, maybe it was an easy one, but why choose to become a lawyer instead of English professor? It was such an easy decision, actually, in retrospect. It's funny. I was, uh, I was pretty young then, but I thought it was old. So I said to my fiance, who's you know been my wife for many many years, I was like, you know, I was work studying for a PhD, and I, um, I don't know, it just didn't grab me. And I was like, I should have gone to law school. My parents are academics, and my grandparents were teachers. So like, I went into the family business, and I like poetry a lot. Uh, but I was like reading French structuralist philosophers like Derrida and Lacan, and it just bored the shit out of me, and it seemed inconsequential. And I was like, I should go to law school, but I'm too young. And she was like, you're 25. And I was like, fair point. So like, I went to law school. And uh, best decision that I ever made, uh, well, second best. Best was uh, convincing my wife to marry me. Um, second best was going to law school. Um, I'm not sure if my wife would agree, but she hasn't changed the locks yet, so hopefully. But uh, you know, to me, like the thing I like about uh, law is that there's a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? It's very practical, hands-on. You solve problems, whether it's helping people do deals uh, resolve things, whether with the government or with counterparties. And teaching, like, I actually think there's a really important role for teachers in the world. Um, and I guess I wasn't doing a lot of that. Here, I'll tell you a story to sort of describe my frustration. I've told the story before. So, like, if you, um, I'm not sure if I may not, not may not have told it on a on a podcast. So, I was sitting in a course on I don't know some shit about ideology and English literature. I don't even remember, but somebody said. Reading metaphor into the tempest, in Shakespeare's The Tempest, clouds over its ideological content. And I laughed. Like I snickered. And they were like, they all looked at me and they were like, these are very serious people, very serious, like very political, whatever. Like they were, I don't know, there were probably literally some Trotskyites in that class. No offense to any Trotskyites listening out there, but they had no sense of humor. And they looked at me like, and they looked at me and they were like, well, what's so funny, pal? And I was like, well, what the irony here is that you just used metaphor. You used to be, and you can't get away from metaphor. Clouds over. And they looked at me literally like I was the class enemy. And I mean the class enemy in like the Stalinist sense and also like the guy sitting in the class. And I was like, this is just not for me. These people are humorless. I'm going to end up like, you know, I'm not going to. Not going to end up getting a great post. I was at a decent grad school. I was getting a PhD at Syracuse, but it was a tough job, Mark. And I was like, you know, I just want to do something practical. I want to be like, you know, uh, Warren Zevon's uh, Warren Zevon's Lawyers, Guns, and Money? Do you know the song? 
oh, dude, like you're like you're you're a lawyer. Like every young lawyer should at least once in their life listen to the lawyers, guns and money live. Um, I wanted so there's like there's I like that lawyers, guns and money, like things that are practical that can do stuff. I wanted to do something that was consequential um, and immediate, and with people who didn't think that irony was ideologically impure. So like I left law school. I was working on a I was working on a dissertation. It was a draft, uh, to your point, on ABD. I was working on a dissertation on the connection between um, tech, sort of technology and law and sort of relating the development of the printing press to the development of the modern novel and trying to draw an analogy to sort of the early World Wide Web, um, really hypertext, which is what we called it back then, back in the olden days, and um, sort of new developments in law. And uh, I spent a bunch of time in the law library at the University of Michigan in the basement. And I was like, yeah, that was also part of part of it. I was like, this law stuff is cool. So I went to law school. That was a really long answer, which makes me a bad interview subject because I didn't let you talk. No, that's what this is for. It is for people to listen to you talk, not to listen to me ask questions. And to, to double down on that, um, has I can imagine you had some presuppositions of what being a lawyer would be like and what it would entail. I was wondering if there's anything that's been different. What surprised you the most since you began practicing law versus what you've seen now? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I guess one element that I didn't consider that wasn't a surprise was, um, so there's the part of being a lawyer that involves uh, being a professional, being a fiduciary, which I think is um, powerful. It means something to me. Uh, client confidentiality, attorney-client privilege, putting your client's interests above your own. I think that's sacred. Um, and it may make me goofy as hell and like antediluvian 19th century, but I love that bit of the law that is about being a professional and, you know, being able to put your client's financial interests over your own. We have to do that all the time. I enjoy that. It, <laughs> you know, I could probably drive a nicer car um, if I looked at it differently. Uh, so that was like one, not a surprise, but one thing about it that I didn't anticipate how much I would actually love having clients and giving people advice and sometimes like giving people advice that they didn't want to hear. Um, I find that very rewarding. Um, that part of being a lawyer, that's also being a counselor. Uh, I mean, that's what it says on my law license, uh, turning counselor at law. And I think the counselor part, um, it's powerful and um, I don't know, it still means something to me. The other piece of it, which is sort of the opposite side of what I just said one thing I didn't quite get was that there was a uh, mercantile commercial part of this. Um, you have to get, you have to know how to set rates. You have to know how to get paid. You have to be able to have uh, direct conversations with people about money. Um, and any worries I had about doing that were burned out of me when my, I had my own law firm for a few years. Because if I didn't get paid, I couldn't pay my fucking rent. So I don't understand lawyers who. Um, don't want to send their bills out or are afraid of talking about money or are afraid of telling their clients exactly what they think, even if it might mean they'll get fired. Um, so those are the things that were, I guess, not a shock to me. Like the rest of it, it's like, you know, you spend a lot of time reading and writing, now staring at a screen, going to court. I don't do that part as much as I used to, but that's kind of all sort of what I expected. Uh, long hours, um, you know, demanding you know, when you're more junior, like demanding partners to work for. But um, it was that part. It was the sort of that sacred um, relationship with clients 
And on the other hand, also the mercantile component of law business, like balancing those two things is, um, it's not always easy, but it's, I find it very rewarding. And before you switched, or not switched, but before you began bringing crypto into your practice, uh, I know you had built an expertise in insurance and construction. I was curious how you went about building that expertise and how or why you decided to add crypto into your practice. Because to an outside observer, those are three very unrelated subjects. There's an assumption there that I should disabuse you of, which is that everything in life happens because you plan it. Now, I thought when I went to law school, like I, I knew how to, you know, I was fairly technically sophisticated. I was using the World Wide Web before there were, before the Mosaic browser using links on Unix. I've been using email since probably before you were born. I'm sorry. I don't mean that to diminish you. It just means I'm old. Um, so like back when, like, back when your ability to send email required, you know, putting floppy disks into computers and like using a dial-up modem to use America Online or, you know, I'm sure people don't, don't know what CompuServe was, but I do. The first time I saw a computer was like, was in an education uh, school at the University of Delaware using something called Plato back in a long time ago. And like had vector graphics and a flight simulator. I was like five years old. She had captured my imagination. So like I assumed after my journey in grad school that I'd become a technology lawyer. But I went to a law, like I had, had to pay the bills. I got a job uh, in St. Louis, which is where I went to law school at WashU at a firm. And the uh, first thing I was asked to do was uh, something related to insurance. It was a question about whether or not eight exposures to tainted food in a deli was eight occurrences under an insurance policy or one? And for someone who used to be, who was about to be an English professor, I mean, it's intellect, it's, it's um, all about parsing language. It's intellectually challenging. Nobody else wanted to do it, uh, which meant there was plenty of work to do. And uh, so I developed a specialty in it. And I moved to St. When I moved from St. Louis to DC, I joined a construction practice that uh, was a very high-end construction practice. Um, you know, it represented owners and builders, people building stadiums and power plants and I you know worked on nuclear power deals so I just I learned about construction because that's what you do and um, you know help design uh, you know insurance programs and suit insurance companies and somewhere along the way I ended up working on a software project of my own in like 2014-15 involving dispute resolution and it, it led me to Bitcoin basically and um, you know, that led me to, I came to Anderson Kill as a coverage lawyer, but they let me start a crypto practice here. And it was, I basically became what I set out to be at the beginning. I just had a fucking circuitous route. There was no like, there was no like Steve Pally 20 year plan where I was like, first year, I'm going to do insurance. And then like year 12, I'm going to teach myself Ruby on Rails and what Heroku is. And I'm going to build a failed dispute resolution platform, but it's going to teach me about how micropayments in the United States and, you know, privacy are broken. And I'm going to learn about homomorphic encryption and, you know, um, Yao's millionaires problem. Like there was no, there was no master plan in part of it is like, I got lucky. The other part of it is, um, I mean, I, I'm just like, I, I get bored when I don't learn new shit. So, you know, this is how I ended up being this. There was literally though, the idea that like, I get, you know, people reach out to me and they're like, how do we become a crypto lawyer? And it's like, well, I want to like be a lawyer and like 
find something about crypto that you like and write about it, have a loud mouth and, you know, eventually work will come to you. And then work leads to more work if you do good work. It's, it's like, it's kind of not rocket science. Kind of, maybe, I don't know. There's some good, there's some luck in there, I suppose. You know, I liked doing, like, designing insurance programs for nuclear power plants. Fucking cool. Nuclear power is, I thought, like, 12 or so years ago, I thought I was going to become a nuclear lawyer. Like, I, you know, like, went to a client, saw the inside of, like, a mock-up of a nuclear power plant, like, went to nuclear conferences. And for reasons, I had a couple of law firms go bankrupt because of 2008. And so I just ended up doing something else, which is probably I'm better, I'm more suited to doing, but you know, they're all basic like legal skills. So if my wife listens to this, Jacob, she's going to be like, there you go again, pal. You're, you're shitty to interview because you don't let the interviewer talk. You just like, no, that is, that is what this is for, honestly. And I was looking forward to this for a while. So it's a really real pleasure to, to be speaking with you. And I want to talk about something you mentioned, which was impasse breaker. And that was the platform you were building to solve a trust problem you identified in litigation and dispute resolution. And to do so, you taught yourself to program, as you say, reasonably well. I was curious when you started to learn to program and, and what that journey looked like. Yeah, I mean, it was honestly kind of awful. So I identified this problem. It's like a, it's a high-low problem in litigation in most negotiation. Everybody knows what their bottom line is, but you can't jump to it because if you do, like you lose negotiating leverage. I've been dealing with it since I started practicing law back in the 19th century, right? It's just like most cases could settle at the beginning if there was just a trustless mathematical way to do it and payment was fairly automatic. Um, you know, crypto for what it's worth, it's like uh, automatic escrows, trustless escrows, double-blind negotiation. Anyway, I discovered this in this method, we're going to call it that, in a lawsuit in 2014. In the lawsuit, I was like, there should be software that does this. And I convinced I was a partner in a firm uh, in D.C., a regional firm. And uh, there was another lawyer who I knew who was a programmer also. And I was like, John, we should like we should build this. He was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so like, he built me something rudimentary. I left my firm to start my own firm and to build this. And like, for whatever reason, the guy just like, he didn't have time. And uh, he wasn't really that interested. And when the rubber hit the road, I was left with half built spaghetti code and an idea. And I, you know, wanted to try and make a run at it. So like I bought a copy of Michael Hartle's uh, How to Program Ruby on Rails read it like five times, just like built and, you know, iterated and iterated and iterated. Ruby on Rails um, is actually a really powerful web framework. Um, I had to learn something about database programming too, using Postgres, but Ruby on Rails makes that pretty easy as well. And I had to learn, you know, HTML and CSS and JavaScript all, which is pretty easy. Um, so I would say like... Um, What's the word? What, what am I thinking of? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Like, I didn't really have any choice, so I learned to build it. That didn't work out for me because I didn't know fuck all about digital marketing or raising money. Um, like, the right person at the right time could have turned that thing into a massive, massive venture. It just wasn't me, and it's okay. Uh, and then I had a client come along about an insurance issue. Then it turned out he wanted to build an ad tech platform. 
So I knew enough about software development at that point to, to figure out that his developers were just fucking him left and right. So I ended up basically helping him build this thing and being his, his outsourced general counsel. I learned about social media, digital marketing. I ran his Twitter and Facebook, which is um, – and then that didn't really work out, uh, not because – for lack of trying, but – so I decided that I still really liked Twitter, so I stayed on Twitter on my own. And uh, came to Anderson Kill and, you know, just plotted away for years. Uh, I spent a lot of years walking in the desert, really. Um, it was hard, and it still is sometimes. So, um, you know, shit doesn't happen overnight for most people. So, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the advantages that you've seen in your legal career from having learned a back from having a background in programming have there been certain things or certain advantages that you feel have been helpful to you because of this background well i mean to, to be clear like i'm not a professional software engineer my skills are rusty now because i've had to spend much more time practicing law but i actually tried i did some web development on my own before i joined the firm and like you know charge people for doing it I had so much fun refactoring code. I lost so much money because I didn't know how to bid the work. Um, and this was like, this was before, this was maybe roughly when, uh, what's it called? Um, Squarespace became, you know, an easy to deploy platform. I mean, I was still building stuff using um, using Rails or what's it called? Sinatra, some other little Python and Django using web frameworks. Um, you know, there are some similarities between the discipline of law and the discipline of software development, but the overlaps are not as significant as I might have thought at one point. The thing that really struck me is, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an okay guitarist. Like, I really like music. Uh, for me, programming, in many ways, it feels like music. And one of the things I learned about software developers is um, they're like, they are like artists, um, and if you don't know, how, if you don't understand how to like treat a musician or treat an artist and appreciate like getting them that they have to be in a zone and you cannot fuck with them when they're building. And if you don't appreciate the pretty code, you won't have a good relationship. So like, that's one thing that I learned was how to, that, that software development and programming, those are creative disciplines. Um, and you have to appreciate and respect that. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a piece of it. Um, you know, it's like when I was, I still do work for construction companies. And I know how, I know the construction process works. You know, I know what, I know what a change order is. I know what a PCO is. Like, I understand the difference between, you know, design documents and, uh, construction documents, like what a shop drawing is. Um, so like understanding how the process works certainly helps you advise people on the front end. Um, it definitely helps, you know, part of some of the some of the advisory work we do, it's regulatory in nature where we try and help people avoid regulatory tripwires. You know, if you don't know what GitHub is and you don't know how to read, um, you, you don't know how, you don't know sort of the basic elements of software development, it's hard to represent the people in space. But you don't have to be a programmer uh, to have those rudiments. I just like, I sort of got that midway through my career by happenstance. And yes, it's been helpful. I, I wanted to, to talk to you about software development and at Ethereum Berlin, you analogized the licensing process for engineering with software development and gave the example of building a bridge in a negligent manner, 
right? The builders can be sued, potentially criminally tried. They have to take some sort of responsibility. I was wondering what your current thoughts were on software development and how something like this could be welcomed if it still should be welcomed in the space. Yeah, so here's my thinking on it. I um, I tweeted something about this about a year ago, and I was rightfully and mercilessly trolled, but my point was misunderstood, and fuck, it's Twitter, so I fine, I get it. Here's my thinking. Um, look, the fact that an engineer has to be licensed and it has to stamp plans for a bridge to be built using those plans doesn't mean that people who draw need to be licensed. My question is sort of maybe more macro, which is um, if we're building technology that has systemic importance and that creates systemic risk, uh, we should recognize that that risk exists and figure out how to mm, protect ourselves from it. Maybe that doesn't involve licensure, but let's take like, let me, I'll take an, an example, and there's a connection here. It'll take me a second. You take the proposed changes to Reg ATS in the United States, under which uh, Chair Gensler, um, you know, and, and the SEC, it's not just Gensler, but there's a proposal that would broaden the definition of exchange to include uh, communication protocol services. Uh, which arguably could wrap certain types of DeFi protocols and maybe even crypto exchanges um, necessarily could make them um, Exchange Act reporters. Now, the technology creates risk. But the question is, like our securities laws in the United States, and you're in Canada, but I'm assuming the same is mostly true in Canada, they come really out of the 19th century. So they are the, our, the 33 Act, the 34 Act, the 40 Act, those are all sort of, those are the tale of the, the Great Depression and the collapse in 1929. But the laws were modeled after state blue sky laws, which uh, developed in the 19th century to protect invest to protect um, investors from unscrupulous promoters, like people running scams, trying to sell the, the blue sky. It's one thing to say DeFi or crypto presents risks. It's another thing entirely to say that a 100-year-old statutory framework with antecedents 50 years before is the right solution and that we should try and jerry-rig this old statutory framework to fit current risks. The current risks are technological in nature, and maybe they're not ones that are, are resolved by having a notice and disclosure requirement uh, you know, uh, that um, – would apply to sort of conventional securities exchanges. It's not, so my response is, I do think that software development and certain types of technology, semi-autonomous vehicles, quote unquote AI, we can look at it more broadly. Those things create potentially existential risks. So why um, would we, hold on just one second. I guess the you know the question is like why why are we relying on old ways of thinking and is it really a problem to say that if you build something really important and powerful uh, there should be a framework in which those things are built? I give you like one other thought, which is that you couldn't have high rise buildings until you had elevators. Elevators were invented in the early nineteenth century. When they were first invented, they didn't have steam brakes, so people died. <laughs> they were just like, if it failed, it died. But like we go into elevators every single fucking day and we expect that they work. And every single one of those elevators, at least in the United States, 
every single one of those elevators has an inspection certificate in it, which is why you know that when you go into it, it's not going to, you know, these things do break occasionally, but they actually work remarkably well. And so the question is, if this stuff is really important and really powerful, what is the problem with recognizing it and saying, we should hedge against risks? Uh, at the same time, like, I don't want to have a regulatory regime that stops it in its tracks. It would, it's like, um, you know, applying horse and buggy speed limits to automobiles. Obviously, that doesn't work. So that's kind of my thinking about, no, I don't think that everybody who slings code should have to be licensed, um, you know, but I do think that there are, uh, you know, for truly important technology, you have truly important risks. Let's not be morons about it. And you know, one other thing I'd say about it is if we're morons about it, um, legislators and regulators who maybe don't give a fuck about the technology will create frameworks that are even worse. So I would say, like, it's important to engage and think of ways to manage that risk intelligently. Why do you think Chair Gensler and the SEC wants more power to regulate peer-to-peer transactions? Because that's something I've had a difficult time understanding. He knows, he understands the technology. He's given lectures on it to a certain extent. Why would he want this to fall under the SEC? Is it a power grab? What, what, do you, what are your you thoughts know, on that? I don't know Chair Gensler. Um, what I know of him personally, um, I'm going to assume that he's a decent person who uh, is interested in service. No, I'm, I'm being serious. Um, he's a decent person who's devoted a lot of his life to service. What his personal motivations are, I don't know. But, you know, there are a lot of unscrupulous actors in crypto. A lot of people have lost a lot of money. Uh, I don't think that there is anything wrong with calling that out and calling for there to be certain types of protections. I think the question is whether or not the 33 Act and the 34 Act and the 40 Acts are the ways to provide those protections. But um, so cynical power grab, I don't know. I mean, you know, people say all sorts of things. I, I tend to, um, I, I don't think that the ad hominem is really, it's not effective. It's kind of dumb. I'm actually assuming that Gensler is a good guy. I just maybe disagree with him fundamentally about you know, what the role of the SEC should be vis-a-vis crypto, but he's working with the tools that he has. Here's this is an interesting fact that I just learned recently. The SEC was sort of an afterthought. Originally, uh, securities laws in the United States were, were the initial plan was that they would be um, overseen by the FTC, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, which, you know, controls um, antitrust and certain types of consumer protection. So, you know, my question is, um, He, maybe he sees a problem and he's trying to fix it with the tools that he has. I'm just not sure that those are the right tools for the risk that I see, which are not – these are technology risks. They're not investor protection risks in the classical canonical sense. And it's difficult because there is so much going on in the space and there are bad actors and there are securities or things that look exactly like securities offering. Um, and I think decentralization is a really interesting concept, uh, at least legally – um, and you had tweeted that we should be rethinking the concept of marketplaces and the need for the type of regulatory oversight the SEC exerts over centralized marketplaces in decentralized peer-to-peer exchanges intermediated by protocols, not people. I was wondering if you have a term for decentralization. Like, is there a line in the sand that could be crossed to go from centralization to decentralization? 
Well, that's an interesting question. Um, one struggles with that. I think it's so that I don't love the term sufficient decentralization, which uh, William Hinman, you know, used in a speech a couple of years ago. But I think that's like a fair question. Like from a securities law standpoint, we know that something can go from being a, an investment contract, from being a security to being a non-security. Um, we don't really have case law on that. Um, you're in a common law jurisdiction as well. Some of this stuff, you know, you have you have a statute, you have statutes, you have 33 Act and 34 Act. You have case law, Howie, Gary Plastic, other cases. Um, you know, the question I have is how mostly federal judges will apply those old rubrics to um, the concept of decentralization, how they might apply a Hinman speech, which is not precedent, uh, or the uh, SEC framework for digital assets. Not precedent, but kind of persuasive potentially to a federal judge. Could be totally ignored, also, by the way. Um, but TBD, facts and circumstances, gray area, it depends. Those are really not satisfactory answers. Uh, but believe it or not, I've, I've spent the better part of the last week trying to sort of limb that, that uh, distinction uh, for a particular project that I'm working on. And it's a lot of. Like we know what we know what's definitely centralized. Um, we don't really know what is definitely decentralized. Take well, let's take Ethereum and Ether. Like I think most people in this space would agree that Ether is pretty decentralized. Like if um, you know, there's no one party control, but you do have um, sort of systemically important actors like Consensus, which runs in Fura, which most of the major players in the space they use their api to plug into there are probably a couple of big holders who um have significant control over the control over the market you do have a foundation i'm gonna say that you know all things considered ether probably is we've heard this basically from from the commission i don't think it's fair at this point to say that ether is a security at the time of issuance it probably was so like where's that line um, is a really not an easy question. Uh, like, it's easy to say when something is a security. It's a lot harder to say when it becomes not a security. You also have the issue of like um, resources and um, agencies here being resource constrained, like they are everywhere, and there being sort of statutes of limitation. Um, you know, one of the tools that I think the commission is going to try and mobilize is the notion that. If you are an if you're a platform and you are uh, allowing people to trade digital assets that are securities, you, they're going to take the position that you have to report. So you become an exchange act reporter. That's a um, that's a tool that I think we're going to see used and maybe to troubling effect. Uh, I've struggled a lot with the idea of sufficiently decentralized or even legally defining decentralized because once you have that test, it could change in any si certain situation and any set of facts. So that's the great thing about common law. It's flexible. And like we've heard that for the, the Supreme Court uh, say this and the SEC say it, like the Howey test. It's a flexible test, right? Investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits from the efforts of others, uh, managerial efforts, our managerial and entrepreneurial efforts of others. So those 
factors apply to different facts and circumstances. Um, it's not civil law. It's not regulatory code. It's a flexible test that leaves some discretion to a fact finder uh, and to advocates for or against position. I mean, that's one issue that I don't know that sufficient decentralization has been litigated per se in the Ripple litigation, but it seems like it's squarely at issue there. Um, whatever one thinks of Ripple, um, you know, personally not a huge fan, but um, we could see interesting jurisprudence come out of um, that case. Um, really good lawyers representing the defendants, um, and they've notched some wins, and there's a judge who seems receptive. So a case like that, um, you know, could present opportunities. I mean, the difference is, though, there's a, I don't know, there's a, you have people who gained a lot uh, personally, so it might not be the perfect case. In your, in your background research, I can imagine you came across case, many cases and different iterations of some form, or have you come across any cases relating to or discussing decentralization in any context, maybe not pertaining to crypto? You know, it's funny. Uh, so I did write a column for the block for a couple of years on crypto, Crypto Case Law Minute. Was what I wrote it. I wrote this with uh, Nelson Rosario in, uh, in Chicago for a while. And um, I looked at that. And a lot of the cases about decentral, most, there are cases out there that talk about decentralization. They have generally nothing to do with crypto. In fact, as far as I know, none of them did. Uh, I think the first time the word decentralized uh, shows up in American case law sometime in the mid to early 19th century. Off the top of my head, I cannot tell you what those cases are about right now. But crypto is not the first time those words appeared. We'll we'll look them up in the we'll look up those columns and, and link them in the show notes for people uh, if also, it's possible. Uh, blockchain. The word blockchain appears in the 19th century in the in the construction context, um, like a block in a chain. We have to build shit. And, um, Probably by organized crime to kill people. <laughs> to build a DAO. <laughs> um, I, I can imagine that you have many prospective clients who wish to remain anonymous. And today, you know, you're legally required to know a few pieces of info about your client, their name, address, etc. Do you see a future where we only need to know a pseudonym? Or And, and I've analogized this to pen names with, with authors. But you still do need that, that personal name. What, what, what are your thoughts? It's funny. I had a client not long ago. This is great. Send them an engagement letter. They give me their name, their, their information. Send them an engagement letter. They sent it back and they signed it. And then like half an hour later, I got a note on, on Telegram. Hey, Steve, sent back the engagement letter. Um, do you need my real name? <laughs> it was like the absolute fuck. So they, like, they had used a fake name. to And I was like, yeah. And like, um, I do accept... I, I do accept crypto uh, for um, for legal services. We use BitPay, but I do require retainers. Uh, I, I, I do require um, retainers be paid from bank accounts, and you can't really open a bank account with um, without uh, without a real name. I don't know. Maybe I'm old, um, but that that sacred relationship between lawyer and client that I talked about initially. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there who feels like they can confidently and comfortably represent someone who they, whose identity they don't know. I'm not that guy. Um, I don't see how sort of within the realm of professional responsibility um, you can easily do that either. But 
Yeah, it, it's hard to square that with the current uh, law society rules. I uh, we I asked for some questions and we got we got some good ones. Um, one was about the crypto industry's belated lobbying efforts in DC. Do you, do you think they'll have any positive? Uh, will they have some positive effect on regulators, or is it too little, too late? Yeah, no. Um I think it makes sense to engage, and I do think that there will be some positive impacts, sure. Are, are there other countries or examples that you've been looking at or you think regulators could look at for best practices on how to engage with this technology? It's a really good question. I don't really have an intelligent answer for you. I'm just a simple country lawyer, and I really know American law pretty well. But, I mean, I can tell you, like, I get calls from time to time, hey, you know, can you set up, uh, you know – can you set up any uh, foundation for us in Panama or BVI or Caymans? And I just, I don't do that. Um, I actually think it's, it's a great idea and I should do more of this looking at other countries and looking at their frameworks. But I have not I'm part of an editor of the International Journal of Blockchain Law. I did want to talk about Anderson Kill. And you, like Preston, who I had on a couple of weeks ago, uh, you had your own firm and then you decided to go to Anderson Kill. And he said, I asked him why he joined and he said two words, Stephen Pally. I was wondering what your two two words or what your thought process was from going from running your own firm to joining Anderson Kill. Rhonda Oren. <laughs> She's the managing partner in the office here. I had my own shop. I mean, there I was at I was at a firm in DC that died in 2008 because of the same crisis that created Bitcoin. I was just about to make partner, and I'm glad I didn't because I would have gotten sued by a bankruptcy trustee. So I went from that firm to another firm, did make partner there, and that firm promptly went into bankruptcy because of the tale of 2008. I went to another firm, and that firm basically started to go belly up because of sort of the tale of 2008 and also because of stupid financial decisions. So I basically threw my hand and said, fuck it, started my own firm. But I never wanted to be a solo practitioner. I like having partners. They can be a pain in the ass, but like a team is better for me. Um, and, you know, I got a call from Rhonda in 2016. Um, and um, she's one of the best policyholder insurance lawyers in the world. Literally, like I've worked with one of the one of the best things about my career is I've worked with and for some of the most talented lawyers in the world, just great fucking people. And some of them, not including Rhonda, just beat the shit out of me when I was younger and made me better. And I didn't always enjoy it, but it was, uh, that's it. I came, I came to Anderson Kill because of Rhonda, because she called me and I was doing much more insurance work at the time, like representing corporate policyholders against insurance companies. Anderson Kill is, you know, the best place in the world to do that. You know, we have a couple, maybe three or four competitors who are just as good. But, you know, if you know insurance you know that Anderson Kill is the best. So that's partly why I came here. It happens also because, because even though it's high-end work, um, suing people, suing insurance companies is episodic. So you like you win and that's the end of the case. Like you don't you tend not to get volume work for these clients. So the firm has always been open to new, interesting entrepreneurial creative things. And when I said I want to have a crypto practice, they were like, We have clients. I said, yeah, you know, give it time. They said, will it cost us anything? I said, no, and I'll write the website copy. And they said, fine. And I said, I'd like to accept Bitcoin. And they said, well, if you're going to represent people in the crypto industry, you should be able to accept Bitcoin. And then, you know, I explained BitPay and how we'd be able to hedge exchange rate risk. And 
they're fine. I mean, the firm, it's crazy, but, you know, they were in part because of our business model. They were very supportive and still are, um, have, uh, you know, let me build a team. Um, and it took years for me to get Preston to convince them. Same thing with Haley. I have a pretty long view. Um, and, uh, but that's it. I came here because of Rhonda Oren, who is not here today, but is in an office two doors down for me and is, um, you know, had an incredible impact on my life. And even though she didn't understand crypto, she supported me. And that's the same thing about the firm. Like, like one advice I would have for, for junior lawyers is like, find a place that gets you, even if they're not like rah, rah, crypto, Bitcoin, but if they like, if they will support you and trust you and let you do your thing, um, that means a lot. Also, I had to move around a lot for a bunch of reasons. I actually advise moving around a lot is not great for business. I'm, I'm not a big fan of it for, uh, for as a lawyer. So yeah, that's how I ended up here. So that's fascinating. And, and you mentioned Preston and Haley. And I, my next question segues into that nicely about building a team oh, of crypto and Jeff lawyers. Harris, who just joined us too, who's awesome. And Jeff. Yeah. And Jeff as well. And uh, you, you have a great team of crypto lawyers that you work with. I was curious how you make hiring decisions or what your thought process is when you're bringing lawyers onto the team. Well, I've known Haley and Preston for a long time. Um, and... Um, you know, I don't know, like, I just, I know that they're smart and I trust them and uh, they do what they say they're going to do. And um, we sort of operate, it's not consent. We, you know, we sort of operate using our own rough consensus. We built it like a startup within an existing firm, um, which I enjoy. The other way I do it, I don't know, like people reach out, just relationships, you know, you know, people for a long time. I'm never shy about asking people, even if it's not the subject, whether or not they have any interest in joining uh, and joining us. You know, sometimes those calls, you know, come to fruition. Sometimes they don't. Like I had somebody follow me on Twitter not long ago, and I just out of curiosity looked at them, and I was like, "Damn, I need to hire that person." So now we're talking to them. I don't know if we'll be able to make it happen, but I don't know. I'm kind of shameless when it comes to that. Like, you know. Jacob, you want to open a Canadian office of Anderson Kill? You know, I mean, sort of kidding, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of the way some of the stuff happens. Like, I was on a panel with Haley like three or four years ago at Georgetown. She, I think she was a bit flyer at the time. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, ever think about joining, um, going back to the law firm? She was like, nah. And then I saw her like a year later and she was at Coinbase. And I was like, you know, it's like, when do you get tired of Coinbase? You should call me. And she was like, no, it's great. So then after I saw she left Coinbase, I like, I emailed her and I was like, Hey, so maybe now would be a good time to talk. So like part of it for me is just like, you find people and you're like, you know, it's okay. If you don't want to do it now, I'll find you. Um, one of my law partners just went in house, um, and, um, has my incredible support, but he also knows that like, I've had that conversation and been like, when you get tired of that, you just let me know. Yeah, persistence and playing the long game. And it's funny because that sounds a lot like how this podcast works for me. When I first started out, it would be, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And people started to get less busy and, and then just persistently in a polite way asking them, if, if you're interested, please join. So uh, that's that's great to hear. Preston wanted me to ask who your favorite hire was at Anderson. <laughs> we don't have to answer that. Well, I'm just here's what, like, um, when my kids, you know, when kids are young, they're like, who do you love most? And we're like, um, we, what was, what was it? we say like, there's always more love 
right? Like love is like a limitless resource. So, or like with a, with a baby, like that is the cutest baby in that age group, right? You never have to choose. Like I would say the best, my favorite hire is um, like my favorite hire at the time we hired Preston was Preston. My favorite hire at the time we hired Haley was Haley. It was pretty diplomatic, right? You can tell I've got three kids. <laughs> That's a great answer and a great way to. Maybe in their age group, cutest dog in his age group. So that's, they're, um, they're both, they're, I don't know. Preston was like, I literally, I've known Preston since 2015. Preston was a great fucking hire. Um, just like, I don't know, hard worker, um, great technical understanding. Um, I don't know, just like an open mind. And I think anybody who knows both of us knows that like politically we couldn't be more different, but it doesn't fucking matter. Because we have sort of an old school understanding of like what makes for a successful business and an old school understanding of America being a place where um, you can have different opinions and still be friends with people. Haley also just an incredible lawyer, like early crypto, like at Silvergate Bank in like 2014. Uh, she's been around forever. Uh, still a baby as far as I'm concerned, like age wise. I'm the grumpy old man. Uh, but they're both like same thing with Jeff, like Jeff. Jeff may be the only person in crypto who also is like a serious debt finance lawyer. Like he's got years of experience setting up uh, collateralized uh, debt facilities for like, you know, fortune 50 companies, but he's also like deep down the DeFi and crypto rabbit hole. So like really what I want, you know, Haley knows how to do 50 state money uh, transmitter licensure and like FinCEN exams and FinCEN compliance programs and registration. But she gets crypto. Like what I want is, and Preston is like a you know brilliant software licensing and commercial contracts lawyer. Is dual, um, you know, dual qualified in uh, England and Wales and in the United States and New York, Connecticut and DC. Like what I want is, I want people who are good lawyers who like get the technology and are excited about it. And you know, you have those two things. Like if anybody's listening to this and like that sounds like you, you just call me. I still also answer my own phone. Uh, to call me, send me a DM. Just like, don't send me a Google Doc link or ask me to join your Discord. Um, you know, otherwise, like, you know, right on. Like, hit me up. What I'd like to do is uh, make this practice. Uh, I'd like to continue to see it grow with great people. Also, as opposed to other large firms, we encourage, like, at least in the crypto group, my partners listening to this, uh, I'll cover your ears, but not my crypto partners. We encourage people to know how to shit post responsibly. So, <laughs> and we will get to that. I've got some fun questions uh, that I want to save. I just got two more, more uh, legal minded ones. The first is you mentioned being a good lawyer and a great lawyer. What are, maybe you could touch on one or two points or, or three points on what makes a great lawyer. Sure. Um, a couple things. One, well, you have to like have a good work ethic, obviously, like being smart isn't enough. Um, you have to let the facts take you wherever they take you. You have to be willing to not pull your punches, but to know how to be brutally honest while diplomatic at the same time. Um, and it's really hard, but like you, you have to not take shit too seriously. Or I shouldn't say that. You have to not take shit too personally. Um, you also need to be responsive as hell. Uh, and I try. Like when I started out, like the rule was you're supposed to respond to people in two hours, and if you couldn't respond in two hours, uh, at the very least, you sent an acknowledgement. And you had your secretary call within a day. 
Um, so I think some of it is just like basic customer service and respect. Um, eye for detail helps. All sorts of factors. But there's this like, it's exciting. Like people, sh- people like invite you into their world and either like their exciting projects or their problems. And they rely on you to, to, to guide them through it. And like, if you don't love that, don't be a fucking lawyer. Like if you're in it just for the money, like don't like go, go do something else. Cause you can make a, a decent, you can make a lot of money doing it, but there are easier ways to get rich. Um, this isn't it. This is like for people who are creative, friendly, diplomatic, I don't know, serious at a certain level, but not people who are just trying to get rich. Just doesn't work. Otherwise, I wouldn't be driving a 2007 Kia Sedona. You and Sam Bankman Fried. <laughs> God, I mean, Sam Bankman Fried, like, if that guy doesn't care about money and that's caused him to do well, God love him. Um, yeah, he's great. Like, obviously, like, you could tell from his, uh, his shoelaces, that congressional hearing, he's just like, he's doing shit that he loves, and I admire that. Yeah. And I think that's, no one can compete with you if you're doing something you love because what feels like work to them won't feel like work to you. And I know I feel that way about anything related to crypto law and I'm sure, sure you do as well. It's not a roses. Like I've been up since, I have been up since six and some of the work that I did does feel like work. I, I wanted to ask you about something that young lawyers spend too much time on that they could either skip entirely or that they don't need to worry about because looking back, it doesn't make as much of a difference as we think. Um, I'm not really sure I have a good answer to that. I think it all depends. I can tell you like the best piece of advice that I got as a junior lawyer starting out was I, I want to take a vacation. I went next door to my friend, Michael, who got me the job. And I said, Michael, I want to take a vacation. What's the policy here? And he said, Stephen, you're a professional. You do not ask to take for vacation. You let you let people know that you will be taking vacation. Um, I haven't always been great about taking vacation because I'm a fucking dipshit and I work too much, which is not bragging. It's like stupid. Like nobody on their deathbed thinks, Damn, you know, I just wish I'd like worked one more Sunday. Um, but I would say like, you know, you're a professional. Um, I also think um, people are afraid of saying they don't know. And I think it's actually a sign of strength to say you don't know something. So like a mistake that people make when they're junior is um, feeling like they have to appear like they know everything and that they're right. And you just like, you can't. <laughs> like if you don't know the answer, you have to say, I don't know that. And either the follow on is either I can find out or let me see if I can figure out who will be able to help you. Uh, there's absolutely no upside in trying to bullshit your way through things. Um, you know, the other thing is, um, back when I started, people still used faxes to send letters. We had a rule, which was you never send a fax, um, last thing in the day, last thing in the day, you always wait, um, until the morning. And I would say like, don't hit send until like, sometimes like if it's important, print it out and proof it first. But like getting into battles instantaneously, just like on Twitter, it's, uh, it's bad. So like. Lincoln used to write letters to people who pissed him off and then not send and them. I do that with, and not send them. I, I sometimes do that with emails. I've got a, I'll write like a blistering response and then I'll delete because it just doesn't do any good. Sometimes actually I learned this too from a opposing counsel in case once we had this terrible spat and it was like a long email chain. I just got a fresh email from her the next morning. It was like, let's start over. Like, here's what's going on. Here's my suggestion. 
uh, let's just reset. And we did, and we resolved it. And I think that's actually sometimes very effective. It's just like, a, you remember, like the, whatever the problem is, it's, it's a client problem. Don't make it into a personal problem or a problem with you and your opposing counsel. If shit is getting heated, just like set it aside and like the next day do a reset email. I think that's a really valuable, uh, a really valuable uh, practice tip. Are there any other habits that you've developed or you were encouraged to develop throughout your practice that have helped you be successful in the long term? I guess like making a joke about, you know, bourbon and cocaine is probably not wise. It would be a joke too, by the way, in case anyone's listening. Um, I don't know. I mean, it really, like Justice Brandeis said a century ago, um, I can get seven days work done in five, but I can't get five days work in seven. And I can get 12 months work done in 11 and 11, but not 11 mo- uh, months work in 12. Like, some of the most, the most successful people I know, like I saw this when I was a junior, like probably this guy is now chair of one of the biggest firms in the world. He would always take two weeks off and like be off the grid. And if that guy could do it, then he was like fucking hot shit, making millions of dollars a year in charge of a massive law firm. This was when he had an active litigation practice. Um, I know it's like, it's sort of canned advice, but um, I learned it the hard way as I got older. Like if you don't take a vacation, a vacation will take you. Like it will just, and it'll be bad and you'll fucking burn out. Um, So like there's that. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's like, it's like stupid advice that maybe your generation doesn't need. Um, But you just like, kind of like if you can't unplug one day a week, you ain't going to make it. Like you really won't. I'm also deeply skeptical of people who say they bill 2,700 hours a year in, year out. I mean, if you are, you can do that for like three years maybe. Uh, but I think often people who say they are really aren't. Um, and um, if you have a firm that's making you do that, you should find a new job because you're not going to – it's not sustainable. Um, you'll never be able to have anything for yourself. And as far as I know, we only get to go around once. So like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And uh, to 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 go back to the idea of you being an English professor, is this where your conviction for certain ideas of two spaces after a period, a love of certain fonts, and Oxford commas came about? I have a really difficult time understanding the two spaces after a period. Fonts, I can understand. Um, I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's just Twitter and I'm sort of a frustrated poet. So who the fuck knows what, sometimes I forget that people are listening and I just like say shit because I just need a break from something else that I'm doing. And I'm like, Oh, there are 22,000, I don't know more. I don't even remember. They're like, you know, tens of thousands of people reading this. And I just said something. I was like, ha ha, use two spaces. Um, I like, because of my training and I, I, I have used software to write since college so, like, I've actually been using a word processor for a long time, um, like, back when WordStar was a thing. Um, so, when I was learning, you used two spaces. And when I was a baby lawyer writing briefs, you used two spaces. And if I had used a single space, I would have gotten my head chopped off. Two spaces looks normal to me. I honestly don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> as far as – That's official. The thing I don't like about Google Docs is that – I have to like basically log in and reset every time I use it. I also don't really trust things that are privileged being on someone else's server, that someone else being Google, and that the version history can be seen by people who might not be my client. 
easily. Like from a litigator standpoint, it makes me uncomfortable. Uh, from a collaboration standpoint, every time you send me a link, I've got to do three extra things as opposed to you sending me a doc where I just have to open the thing. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of it. It's like, it's a pain in the ass. Um, Those are very, very valid like points. With Calendly, like I'll use your Calendly fine, but you just like took scheduling. Now I've like, I got to go look at your calendar and then compare it to my calendar. So you just took the burden of finding a time and shifted it to me, which I guess is okay, but I still don't love it. Uh, so let's see. Fonts, I'm just like, I don't know, I'm just shit posting, man. Like, you, you, you do you. I happen to think that Times New Roman looks ugly. It came around to it. Like, Anderson Kill, like, the default font is Arial. I hated it when I got here, but it's actually, like, it's a no-frills, I'm-not-fucking-around font, and I find it appealing, and I like the angular directness of it. I don't like, I don't like serif fonts for legal writing. Um, no, it just like, it feels like there's an indirection in the ornateness of the design. Um, that's just like, it's a personal style preference. I honestly like, do I really care? No, it's just Twitter. I'm just shitposting. It's something. Do you have a, you know, do you have, do you have a favorite font? It's Arial. Yeah. Arial 12 point. You know, you, you want to use like Garamond nine point italics. It's going to be hard for people to read. But like, go ahead. Like, it's your own funeral. I, I wanted to ask you about ACME Herring. What, what are they waiting for? Why well, haven't they ACME, sponsored Acme, you yet? Acme Herring. Acme. Acme. I don't know. I tried, what, what are they waiting for? I tried. Like, I tried to engage with them. Like, <laughs> I tried to boost them, and they just ignored me. They uh, they did me cold. So, not really sure. It, it's a joke that goes back to one of the early ICOs. And I feel like I've told that story too many times, so I'm not going to repeat it here. But it's actually, believe it or not, that crypto stuff is actually, uh, the herring stuff is actually a crypto joke. Well, that makes it even funnier, too. I, I find your Twitter account hilarious. And I wanted to ask you who runs the Twitter account, but clearly it is, it is you, use, the, the uh, post you had yeah, about. It's, uh, I have a team of, uh, a team of people <laughs> sitting in a dumpster on Colesville Road. Uh, Mona Hamdi, she runs my Twitter account. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Stephen, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was something I was really looking forward to. I really admire what you've built. And I think a lot of people share that sentiment. So thank you for being so generous with your time. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. You're really good at this. So I appreciate the, being able to ramble at you for an hour. <laughs>